Welcome to the Underground Sessions podcast, courageous conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. Each episode will feature a compelling conversation around an important issue. As we step into the tension, we remind you that the views expressed by guests may not reflect the views held by Millington Baptist Church. Now, let's start our session. Well, hello and welcome to the Underground Session Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Erbig. I'm here with my um, pastoral colleague, Dave Henschel. Dave, welcome. Good to have you back. Hey, Bob. Great to be on the show today. Yeah, we've, uh, we've done several podcasts in the past. If you haven't checked those out, we did one on the uh, latest one we did together was How to Trust the Bible. Um, what other ones did we cover, Dave? We did a few other ones, too. I think we did one on the supernatural gifts. That's right. Together. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's all I'm remembering off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was a good one. That was really informational. So if you're interested in interested in um, you know either the the Bible or their spiritual gifts, with which if you're a Christian listening today, I, I certainly hope you are. We invite you to check out those podcasts. Uh, today our topic is going to be God and government, or the gospel and government. Um, we uh, we just this we've been working our way through Romans in our, our sermon series on Sunday morning, and we just came to Romans chapter twelve, which I, I preached on, and um, certainly was a was a challenging sermon to prepare for given the, the current um, state that we're in with the, the country and lockdowns. And now, now we have, uh, now there's, there's riots and protests that are going on throughout the country. And um, people I think have asked the age old question, how do Christians engage with government? What, what do we do? Um, should we obey? You know, certainly Romans 13 indicates we should be uh, subject to the governing authorities. What does that mean? And so what we talked about in, in, in the sermon was um, really, is government a good thing or a bad thing? And uh, what, what I put out there was I think government is a, um, can be a good thing. It can also turn into a bad thing as we live in a post-fall world. But ultimately, um, government came from God. It was God's idea. And so if you look in uh, things like Genesis 9, we see God, uh, people would argue, and I, I think I would argue too, that God first instituted government to restrain human evil and human violence um, after uh, you know the, the, the world was wiped out um, and Noah and his family was left there. So um, recognizing that we live in this post-fall world and we need something to, to restrain evil and to uh, help bring about a, a society that is peaceful and flourishing and has order. Um, and so God gives that to us as, as a gift, um, although he doesn't prescribe a certain form of government that we should follow. Um, he does give us some principles that we should look for in what good government should be. And ultimately, we have to remember that God is, is sovereign over the government and not make government a God in our lives. Um, we also talked about the purpose of government, and I, and I laid out kind of three, three principles for that. Uh, the first principle was that government is there to, um, you know, uh, uh, instill justice and bring, bring judgment when unjust things happen. Um, the second thing, as I mentioned already, was to bring peace, order, and flourishing to this world. And the third thing was to set the stage for redemption, uh, being a foreshadowing of ultimately Christ coming back and establishing his kingdom here on earth, as well as um, uh, creating those peaceful societies where the church can flourish and can um, you know, uh, spread the gospel in a way where it's not um, being persecuted all the time. And then the last thing we talked about what was what do we owe the government, and we, we talked about the idea of bringing honor, uh, where honor is due, honor to the government, um, even when that's a difficult thing. And First Peter talks about that as well. Uh, we talked about what does it look like to, to pray for our government officials. Um, and, then we, and then we ended by talking a bit about um, 
are there times to disobey? Are there times to engage in civil disobedience? So we want to cover some of those topics in a little bit more depth today. And I will say up front, neither Dave or I are experts on this topic. Um, you know, we have some thoughts. We're going to bring some information we certainly hope is helpful to you. Um, but, but certainly, um, you know, there are people with different opinions about things. And so we need to be uh, understanding of that and respectful of that. So Dave, I guess the first question maybe to get us going today is to talk about, you know, Christians and government. And, um, my question, and I think a lot of people's questions would be how should Christians engage the government? And my understanding is that throughout, throughout history, the history of the church, there's been different traditions that have handled that in different ways. And so if you ask somebody, well, how should you engage the government? It's not as easy as just saying, um, we'll just follow what the Bible says, because a lot of different traditions have come down on, have had different views based on what they think the Bible says. So um, I know you had done some reading on this. Maybe you can just sketch out for us what are some of the, the traditions that Christians have had in terms of engaging with government uh, throughout history. Yeah, great. It's, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a spectrum on this question. And it reminds me of a question that I was asked one time in church history class in seminary. It was, it was an essay question. And the professor asks, is America a Christian nation? And it's a kind of question that, you know, it's like, it's, it seems like it should be a simple yes or no answer. Um, but it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, so I've learned that the best way to answer questions like that is to say, well, yes and no. Um, so even in our own history, we've had different perspectives on Christians related to our own government here in this country. So, um, I mean, unlike England or unlike the Holy Roman Empire, our government was set up as a secular entity, not promoting any particular faith or certainly not any denomination. But at the same time, we would have to acknowledge that in America, we've, we have had roots that are closely tied to Christianity since its beginning. You know, many of the founders were Christians. And so, no, we're not a Christian nation. Yes, we're, we are certainly a nation made up largely of Christians, and it's been heavily influenced by Christianity from, from the very beginning. But in terms of that spectrum, I think there's five clear views on how we Christians relate to government and good, godly brothers and sisters disagree on this issue. So I think we, we need to recognize that we're in territory where legitimate disagreement is, is allowed. And we should, uh, you know, as we do in underground sessions podcast, have this conversation courageously, but graciously with those who may disagree. So on the one extreme, you would have the Anabaptist position, or some people call it the separationist view. So this would be the most limited possible Christian involvement with government. Um, there, there was something that came out of the Protestant Reformation called the Radical Reformation with a, with a leader named Menno Simons in Switzerland. Um, that's, that's distinguished from the Baptist tradition that we're actually a part of. The Anabaptists are a, are a different thing. Um, and in that tradition, probably the biggest distinction would be nonviolence. So uh, they'd be pacifistic. They would take Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount very literally. They would see him as speaking against those in the first century, like the zealots who were uh, wanting to take up the sword against Rome. And they, they just do not look to the government as an agent of change. They look specifically just to the church as central. Um, 
they like to quote church his, historian Tertullian, uh, who had that famous question, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? So they just see a very uh, clear distinction. So this would be folks who are Christians who would not want to serve in the military, who would refuse. Uh, they would also not run for public office oftentimes. And so they would be very um, separatist. So um, that's kind of one extreme. Um, maybe we'll put that on the right side of the spectrum. Then, then moving but over. You're, but little, you're saying you're saying that not all Baptists are Anabaptist. No, in their in fact, views, right? Not at all. There's right. there needs to be a distinction made between Anabaptist, which was which was a movement, and um, Millington Baptist Church, or particular Baptists, or General Baptists, or Southern Baptists. Those, those are not the same thing. We may agree on um, credo baptism, but uh, what we're talking about here really is a is a a movement that has um, a very articulated position about how to relate to society and government. Although weren't Baptists engaged in some of the religious wars in, you know, the uh, 16th or 17th century um, with, uh, you know, after the time of Martin Luther, the, I remember the Huguenots and the Anabaptists, weren't they warring with each other over things like baptism and things like that? Yeah. I think there was some serious divisions there so that, we can have a whole podcast just on Baptist history. So it's, <laughs> All right, we'll, it's we'll leave that for another. Topic. We're going to leave that for another time. It would probably be boring to a lot of our listeners, though. Um, okay, so that's one extreme. Maybe moving over a little bit um, to the left would be like the Lutheran view, or it's called the paradoxical view. So here, government is there. It's there to restrain evil. It's there to protect citizens. It's there to seek justice, and Christians can um, work in partnership with government for, for some common good. I, I, some people call this the two kingdoms doctrine where there's this, there's order of creation and then the order of redemption. Um, and so there's these two spheres, so to speak, whereas the, the church works in the order of redemption and, and some institutions uh, that were given by God, such as government work in the order of creation. And so Think of that as concentric circles with some overlap and some mutual causes kind of in the middle. Um, so that's kind of the Lutheran view. Then, um, you know, moving over towards the left side of the spectrum, we have what's called the reform view. Some people call it the transformationist view. This would be like Zwingli, Calvin, Knox. Um, reform folks emphasize God's sovereignty over all things, including government. And they would say government is a good gift from God, along with other institutions like. We'll probably also put. Um, sorry, we'll probably also put Abraham Kuyper in that. He's pro he's probably a more recent theologian that really would have emphasized this. Yeah, I, he's got that famous quote of right. There's not one square inch on earth over which Christ, who is Lord, does not declare mine. So it you know it all belongs to right. him. And he was a statesman and a theologian. Mm -hmm. So. You know, in this system, they would say that there's common grace and that the government can promote some good and that Christians should be involved and bring about renewal and restoration, um, even in this life that we live. Um, that in this in this sphere that I'm I'm so involved in, and as are you, Pastor Bob, um, which I, this is kind of the view I, I find I have most in common with. They talk about something called the history of redemption. So it's like you divide up history in these four acts. So there's fall, no, I'm sorry, there's creation, 
then there's fall, then there's redemption, and then ultimately consummation. And so we are operating here in this third act, the act of redemption, and we await the total consummation of all things. So that's kind of the transformationist view. And then all the way on the left side of the spectrum is the Catholic view, or the, sometimes it's called the synthetic view. Um, this is really the oldest tradition. Uh, Aquinas talked about this. And um, in the Catholic teaching, there's something called the Catholic so social teaching, or CST, where they, they have these seven core principles that they teach. And um, they believe that Christianity should influence society to the point where ultimately we can um, bring Christ over all of society. So teaching the dignity of all human life, teaching the call toward family, teaching rights and responsibilities, teaching a preferential care for the poor and the vulnerable, teaching the dignity of work, solidarity, and then care for God's creation. So the church should be about proclaiming and instituting these principles that are given by God for all of society. And so that's um, a very optimistic view. So I think all these views kind of, they, there's, some, there's some conversations about who's more optimistic and who's more pessimistic with regards to where society and uh, culture is headed. And they all have different places they fall on the spectrum. Now, there's the spectrum, but I don't want to miss one particular category, which I think is unique. And that is the black church, or some people call it the prophetic view. So unlike the other views, this one, this view is distinctly American. It's rooted in the tragic history of American race-based slavery. And this view of government sees the church as prophetically speaking to the government and speaking out against injustice and being very politically involved uh, from the top of the church all the way down to members in terms of instituting um, justice and um, I do think that that's a little bit of a unique view set apart from some of the other views. And so that, that kind of fits in the spectrum, maybe in the middle somewhere. So that, that kind of outlines the five different positions and people fall on all different parts of the spectrum. Does that make sense? or did, I, need to I, I, think, I, think, I think it makes sense. And, uh, you know, we were talking about before we started to record um, this today that we don't often realize how influenced we've been by people like Tim Keller uh, that has... I think gotten us into the um, the idea of having that transformational view about society that, you know, there, there is a, a common grace sense that we should be going out and we should be working towards the renewal of the city, the Jeremiah 29, um, you know, model, seek the welfare of the city while you're living there. Not everybody agrees with that. Um, although we would, we would, um, you know, I think both of us would probably fall in that category. Right. Um, so Keller has a, probably his most developed philosophy here is that book center church, right? Um, and he talks about the two temptations we should avoid. He right. says we should have, the first one's withdrawal, which is the idea like, listen, it's not the Christian's job to mend the world. The world is going to go to hell in a handbasket. We don't care really about it. Leave us alone. We'll do our own thing. It's almost an escapism. That's an extreme and it avoids, I think God's call upon us to be salt and light. And it's a little too pessimistic in my view. I think you share that view. And then the second temptation is the other extreme, which is triumphalism. And that's where, you know, people say Christians should take power and forcefully make society the way it should be and take back the culture, um, almost like as if we want to create a theocracy. And it mingles the nature of the church with how God was working back with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and doesn't take into account the fact that 
his kingdom now has wheat and tares and they grow up together and there's a prophetic judgment coming at the end of this age and true peace won't really come until Christ returns. So I think those are two extremes and he advocates for something in the middle. Bob, maybe you remember what he calls this. I think he calls it something like engaging with Christian distinctiveness or something like that. Yeah, I remember the distinctiveness piece. So we should be Christians who engage the culture with distinctiveness. So we're distinctively Christian in what we do. Um, but there's, there isn't a withdrawal and there isn't a, a, a an attempt to, to dominate, you know? Right. Another so. term, I don't know who, who coined this one, but people talk about Christians should have a faithful presence. So, you know, we ought to have an influence. And I, I think the, the Jeremiah 29 thing is, um, the idea that, okay, you're in Babylon, you're in exile, you're strangers and aliens, but I want you to settle in and build some houses and plant mm-hmm. some gardens and have kids and seek the prosperity of the city that you've been carried off into. So that, that's sort of the engaging the Christian distinctiveness view. Right. And ultimately, as you're blessing the city, as you're blessing the community, it opens inroads for people to have gospel conversations. It's sort of that tension that we talk about with gospel proclamation, that the gospel is a message that people need to believe and repent of. But then as you believe in that, you know, you're going to engage in gospel demonstration, which is caring for the poor and uh, seeking to bring justice on, on, on this world. So, so there's right. those two things that kind of go, that go hand in hand, um, you know, in that. Right. So why don't we, um, you know, I want to move on to kind of another question. And this is, uh, I think, something that people are really interested in. Um, and, and, I, and I did address this within the sermon. It's the idea of, you know, okay, so if I say the government is a gift, um, it's, it's there to restrain evil, it's there to protect us. Um, what do we do, though, if there is uh, injustice or there's times where um, should we at some point disobey the government? Is there, is there a place for civil disobedience? And I think that all of these all of these traditions would say, you know, there is. Although, as I was asking you before, I did have the question about, well, if you take, and I don't want to caricature, caricature it, but as I hear the idea of the Anabaptist tradition where there's kind of a separation, what I, a legitimate question is, what do you do if you see um, something unjust happening? Do you engage with that? So I, um, I you know, I made, I made three, I think, pretty biblical distinctions of when we should engage in civil disobedience with the government. The first one is if the government requires our, our worship, uh, which was the example of Daniel 3 and Daniel 6 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel himself, um, where they were, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were being asked to bow down to a statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so there's been, um, you know, examples of that. You know, whenever you see a totalitarian government throughout history, usually they're requiring some form of worship and allegiance to them over and against your uh, you know, the God that you worship. The second, second distinction where we should um, disobey the government would be if they are, um, uh, you know, telling you to engage in a, in a moral, well, I'm sorry, if, if, they, if, they are, if they are restricting your preaching. And that's kind of the Acts 5.29 where we should obey God rather than men. And the example we gave was, uh, you know, places like China that are arresting pastors for, for preaching the gospel. And the third one was if the government asks you to do a moral, a moral wrong. Um, and the example I gave there was ex- Exodus one uh, seventeen, where Pharaoh's requiring the Hebrew midwives to to kill all the babies, and they they choose to not do that. Um, modern examples could be abortion and thing, things like that. Um, but underneath that category, and this is where I might want to might want to dialogue a bit. Um, I, and I don't know if there's sh- I, I struggle I struggle with maybe there should be a fourth category of 
just what do you do with unjust laws? Um, how do you interact when the government, you know, has a law has been put in place and it, it seems to be bringing injustice upon a certain group of people. And the obvious example of that would be, you know, would be things like slavery, which we've already mentioned, and Jim Crow laws in the South. Um, you know, do we have a moral obligation to, to disobey in those categories? Um, you know, Dave, I think you had a couple of good quotes from Martin Luther King, which I think can be instructive to us here. Sure. I think, you know, Romans 13 seems to not have exceptions, right? It's like, just be subject to the authorities. And this is a good example of when we have to compare scripture with scripture, because it's clear that other scriptures allow for some exceptions. And sometimes you have to take the whole counsel of God. And King did a good job articulating this. I remember one of the, the best things they had us read at DTS was, you know, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. And it, if you haven't read that, you should read that letter. It is profound. There's one little quote I'll share with you where he wrote something very insightful. He says this, there are two types of laws, just and unjust. One has not only a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. And uh, then there's a quotation from St. Augustine who said, an unjust law is no law at all. And so as believers, I think we are called at times to engage in civil disobedience because ultimately, if we're faced with choosing to obey God or obey the government, we must obey God. Yeah, and I, I definitely would, would agree with that. And I think that was, I also used this Mark Dever quote within my, uh, within my message. And I think that he's, he's right here, you know, making the distinction between saying um, we ultimately have to obey uh, our, our higher authority. So the government certainly is a true authority in our life that we're, we're to submit to them. That, that word submission is meaning recognizing that they have authority over us, but it, it does not necessarily mean that we always obey. Uh, and especially when uh, their, their authority is contravened or overpowered by our higher authority, God. In other words, it, it would be wrong for us to obey a lower authority when it's telling us to do something that the higher authority God himself is asking us not to do and has stipulated as being morally wrong. So that's, that's, I think a good distinction. The, the challenge I think gets to, um, you know, the end of Romans 13, one to seven, where it talks about honoring the government. And I, and I think uh, one of the important points that we should take away is that Christians should always seek to be good citizens, that they shouldn't be seen as like rabble rousers or people that are just, disobeying for the sake of disobeying there is a um you know a reason uh, and it's certainly a moral reason behind what we do um you know first peter uh chapter uh two verses 13 to 17 talks about this that there's he he mentions these four components of um of what we should do in our civic life and he talks about um you know he talks about uh showing proper respect for everyone he talks he talks about loving the family of believers fearing god honoring the emperor and so there's these components of um, civilly to everybody that's in society showing respect because everybody's made in the image of God. There is a component of the church that we have our, our, the believers that are around us and we should be loving them and caring for them and protecting them. Um, there's the idea of having a fear of God, knowing that, and, and you know, whenever you see the fear of God in scripture, it's always telling you that God is great. So uh, recognizing that God is, is sovereign, he's in charge of this world. But then there is this, this, aspect of honoring the emperor. And so what does it look like to, 
to honor government officials, maybe even if you disagree with them. And uh, I know sometimes that's hard for, for folks, especially when, um, you know, you might uh, see politicians acting in, in corrupt ways. How do, how do you still have honor for the office? And I, th- I think there is an element that we should always seek to have, bring some honor to that office and to that, that person because they're made in the image of God, but also because there's an office that does have authority over us. Um, even at the same time, while we might need to, uh, to, to disobey because they're, they're requiring something that is incompatible with our Christian beliefs. I don't know, Dave. Do you have do you have some other thoughts about this idea of honor and how we can bring honor even when it's uh, even when we're in a challenging situation? The example that was coming to my mind when you were talking um, was just a couple times Peter uses that word honor. Uh, one of them is husbands honoring your wives, um, and I think about Paul respectfully appealing to the government of Rome when he was, in a sense, mm, being wrongfully. Uh, you know, constrained. Uh, and so think about the way that he addressed Felix Festus and Agrippa in the book of Acts. He, he did not um, in any way disparage them, um, but he would address them in terms of, you know, most excellent um, governor and things like that. I think we've lost, we, we're not a very reverent society anymore. Mm-hmm. We've lost the, the honor that I think um, is helpful for, um, it's just kind of the glue that keeps society together. So I, I think we as Christians can model what it looks like to honor those in government. Even when we don't agree with their policies, we can still give them honor. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And um, another, you know, another thing I wanted to point out, I forgot to mention this earlier, um, but I did make the point in the sermon of saying that God is greater than government. So ultimately, our, our allegiance is to him. So that's kind of the fearing God component of that First Peter passage. Um, but I think too often I see in our, in our current modern day um, dialogue, people almost treating government like it's a savior. So like, like government is going to solve all of our problems. And, and while I would argue that we should be engaged civically in what we're doing, and we should be seeking to establish good governments that have just laws, and we should be speaking out when when injustice happens and speaking out strongly, um, we need to be very careful that, that we don't think the government is going to solve everything because the problem is ultimately in, in the human heart. Um, and, you know, I, I, th- I think one of the reasons our political rhetoric is so hot right now is because people are, are elevating government in, in many ways above God and thinking government will solve everything uh, when we really need to be looking to God first and, and trusting in him and praying that God, God would change people's hearts. Um, you know, I, Dave, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but usually revivals, and I, I'm specifically thinking about the Welsh revival back, you know, in the 1800s, I believe, when people were converted, and this is what the historians would say, when people were converted and when they came to Christ in those societies, yes, they came to Christ, but it also resulted in society becoming better, that people were now seeking to, um, put just laws where there had been injustice there. And so uh, the transformation of the heart is ultimately going to bring about good for society. And, you know, we can't, we can't get it. We can't get that out of order. Um, and I think some people do that. Yeah. Um, I might be misquoting this, but there's a famous John Adams quote where he said something like our constitution was made for a moral 
and religious people, it is wholly mm -hmm. inadequate to the government of any other. So I think getting the order right, right is important. Um, now that doesn't mean that we're supposed to, uh, you know, force people into uh, religion. That's not what we hold to. Um, in the beginning of our country, there were certain colonies that were more, um, but that were different, like the Massachusetts Bay Colony with the Puritans. And um, that was supposed to be a colony set on a hill. They were, they put together the church and the state. They were, they were not private at all about Christianity. It was part of their public life. But then by the time we got to our constitution, um, we see a very different situation. And we've always allowed other faiths to operate here. There's been, you know, Jews and synagogues and Muslims and Buddhists ever since the beginning. So yes, there's some Christianity in our roots, but, um, you know, we, it's a very simple way of thinking from, from a theological perspective or from a pastoral perspective or from a church perspective, we actually believe the truth of Christianity. And so we believe the truth will win out. And so the spirit of God will take that and use use it to bring the truth to those who need it. It's kind of like Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Like, all right, you can have your 450 prophets, take all the time you need, just make sure when you're done, we get our turn. And so in that way, America operates best, I think, as a free country, you know, and we believe as, as Christians that the true God, Jesus Christ, is going to win in that setting every time. And so we would stand for religious freedom, and we need to make sure that there's religious tolerance. That's where Christianity flourishes, and that's why uh, we would fight and stand even for the rights of those who may disagree with us or practice their faith in a, in a different way. But when Christianity takes hold, we believe that that's actually really good for our society. And we have seen a difference, not just um, abstractly, but you know, even reading about the revivals that occur right here in Somerset, Basking Ridge. I remember mm -hmm. reading about the kind of um, moral decisions that were made in taverns and bars uh, right down the road mm -hmm. here after after some of the the events of the great awakening which we you know were right in right in our backyard so hmm. yes we believe that christianity can have a positive influence but not by force we do so right through this uh strange god-ordained ministry of preaching the gospel and god god uses fallible folks hmm. to spread hmm. his word and spread his truth and his hope uh, Jonathan Lehman wrote a great book um, that I think could be helpful in thinking about this. It's, it's a book called How the Nations Rage, uh, Rethinking Faith and Politic in a Divided Age. And um, one of the, ar the main argument he makes in the book is to say, um, and this may sound a little weird when I, when I originally put this out there, but he says that the, the church is actually a, a political entity. And what he means by that is that the church properly done uh, can be a place where people actually learn to live with people they might that are different than them that that may disagree with them about certain things but yet there's a unifying vision of the gospel and what God and what God calls us to in Christian community so the church being multi-ethnic multinational um, is the place where we learn to love our neighbor as ourselves, and then ultimately that spills out into our our you know daily life our civic life and so um you know, when you get into the national politics we have now, people are so angry at one another because they, you know, if there is no unifying vision for um, our commonality, and, you know, if you separate everybody into interest groups, it's really hard to come together. But the church can be that. The church can be different. And so, you know, if we learn to do that within the church, it can spill out and actually make a big difference within within our country and the world. 
Absolutely. So, um, yeah. So why don't we, um, I'd be remiss if we don't talk a little bit about our current situation here in New Jersey and, uh, you know, with government lockdowns. And, and I think initially when this started to happen back in March, people were like, okay, this makes sense. But now as, as, as uh, um, cases with the coronavirus are starting to wane and restrictions are still in place three months later, people are starting to say, hey, you know, the weather's warm. Why is this happening? When are you going to start to reduce the release these things? It seems a bit too restrictive. Um, I'm concerned about government overreach. How do how do we handle that? How do we think about that in terms of our relationship with with government? And uh, you know, one of the things that I that I said, I you know, I kind of looked at this um, situation and put it in the, the the grid or the lens of those three areas of um, you know of, of allowance for civil disobedience, the the worship, the restricting of preaching, the moral. Um, does the government require me to do a moral wrong and, and ask, is, is the government requesting that of us right now? And, and my answer would be, uh, would be no, uh, or at least not yet. Certainly doesn't mean that it can't happen in the future or even in the near future. Um, but, uh, you know, restrictions are in place for our, for our good, but there are other places in the country right now where this is, this is a bit suspect. And if you haven't been following the news, the Supreme court did just, um, rule on this. Um, you know, there was a case that was brought from California where California said essentially that the, the government was discriminating against them uh, and, and, you know, favoring secular businesses and some of the restrictions they were, they were doing. And I, I think an important thing for us to note is that it does become very problematic and, and I would say likely unconstitutional when the government is starting to single out uh, churches in what they're requiring them to do. So uh, that was why there was a big, I think a big debate about the CDC interim guidelines that just came out for houses of worship because, uh, and I've heard some people articulate this, that it's, um, you know, if, if you were doing anything that's singling out churches, it, it's a violation of the first amendment. So I want to read to you. Um, uh, and so I'm sorry, what the Supreme court ultimately decided was uh, in a in a five four decision that uh, they overruled or they didn't overrule they they upheld what the government was doing in California, and and essentially said that um, this is an issue for the local government officials, not for the courts to 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 decide on. Now Russell Moore, who's the president of the um, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, put out a statement, and I just want to read this because I think it's really helpful for us thinking about the constitutionality of this. He said. Um, I wish the Supreme Court had acted to bring more constitutional clarity to this pressing question. There is no dispute that the government has a compelling interest in restricting assemblies during times of pandemic. So that's where I, I was saying in, in the sermon, I think there is a compelling reason for the, for the government to do it, at least at this time. Um, but as Moore points out, he says several states, including Minnesota, California, and Nevada, have pursued policies that are inconsistent, incoherent, and not neutral toward religious gatherings as opposed to non-religious gatherings. And I would agree that becomes really problematic. I just don't think that's happened in New Jersey quite yet. He says, Chief Justice, Chief Justice Roberts is correct to say, and this is what Roberts said in his uh, majority opinion, that a large gathering of people is not the same as a small business where people can socially distance one by one. And that's sort of the, the, the argument between the Home Depot versus the, like the movie theater or the smaller where people, can, people are gathering in a high-density location in a small space. Uh, Moore, though, writes, he says, and yet in many states, that's not where the distinction is being made. In some places, casinos are open while houses of worship are not. This is not sound public policy, and it sets a bad precedent. 
States should set their policies according to the behaviors that can and cannot happen safely. The number of peoples that can be gathered, not on whether the assembly is a church or not a church. And they should apply those standards equally and neutrally. So again, it becomes very problematic when they're singling out houses of worship and not applying it across the board to similar gatherings. It should just be something that's happening on gatherings. The pandemic is a perilous time. We need to emerge from it. This is more writing. We need to emerge from it with both our public safety and our First Amendment intact. We can do that, but only if elected officials and the courts take seriously the matters both of public health and constitutional freedoms. And so that's a tension I think we have to have. Now, some of the things he's bringing up in here, I just, I just don't think have happened in New Jersey yet. Um, they could happen, but just, just not there yet. Um, so, you know, in a sense right now, I think it is behooves us to understand where the, where the governor is coming from and uh, seek to be good citizens in, in obeying that. And then always be vigilant to see if, if some of those things change where maybe churches are being discriminated against and that becomes a much more problematic position for us. Would you add anything to that, Dave? That was well said. Um, I like the way you said, not yet. So, you know, we're keeping an eye on it. Um, I learned that as churches, we are called a, a high-density gathering-dependent business. So as long as they're treating all of businesses like us the same, you know, like the other ones that you mentioned, I feel like we're on solid ground in terms of not being discriminated against at this point. But, you know, we're keeping an eye on it, and uh, we certainly would love to gather together, and um, we, we definitely will take a stand for our rights if, if the situation calls for it. So what we, there are some churches in New Jersey that are, have, agree, have decided to essentially defy the orders and still meet. You know, how, how do we handle that? You know, I sort of wrestle with, I mean, obviously we support their freedom to do that, um, but we would just take a different position at this time. I guess I would sort of wrestle that, wrestle with that in, in terms of an area of uh, legitimate disagreement. My, my view is that, um, here we have an opportunity not so much to be uh, talking about what's morally right and morally wrong at this point or what's biblical and not biblical at this point. I think Christians have legitimate disagreements of opinion on this matter. And so we should respectfully engage and um, accept those who may disagree with us and how we're seeking to walk, walk in wisdom. A lot of these decisions have to be made locally with our own congregation in mind and with our own township and county in mind. And, and so the decisions that church leaders make um, may look a lot different from the decisions that other church leaders make in a different context. And, and that's actually okay. Those are healthy conversations and I think opportunities to engage in a civil way with those who may have a different point of view. So I think it's, it's an area of wisdom um, it's an area of what's called adiaphora or, uh, you know, gray area, disputable issue where we can have good conversations, but I, I don't know that we need to take a moral high ground on this at this point. Yeah. And, uh, you are preaching on Romans 14, I think next week. So I'm going to be looking forward to hearing what you have to say about, uh, gray areas of disagreement. So I'm sure you're busily preparing yeah. that. You know, it's, um, uh, one of those opportunities where the scriptures have been dealing with sources of disunity, division, and conflict since its inception. So churches are fragile things. 
Um, and one of the easiest ways that Satan can get a foothold in our congregations is to uh, stir up division on areas that we really don't need to be dividing over. And so we can respect those who disagree. We can have an opinion. It's fine. Uh, but in terms of demonizing the other point of view or uh, elevating our own point of view as the moral or biblical right way and those who don't agree are sinful, I don't think that that posture is helpful in terms of framing out how we can have an opinion on these things. So Romans 14 will address those types of attitudes of, of judgment towards another believer uh, or of condescension towards another believer who takes a different opinion. So uh, the Word of God is always relevant, and uh, we look forward to seeing how God speaks into our cultural moment as he has been in the past. And I, w- I would point out, though, everything, you know, from Romans 13 to Romans 14 should be informed by that Romans 12, 1 and 2 mindset, where we should not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed. And so we should be very careful that the world's ways and the world's arguments, you know, are e- even our, our political parties should not be the thing that are forming our minds, but we should first and foremost be formed by, um, by what the Word of God says and wrestling with that. So. So as your mind is transformed, what does that look like as you engage in the government? What does that look like when you engage in disagreements? Um, that's, that's, a, that's a really important thing to never forget. You know, as we wrap up here, Dave, I wonder if we can just give a couple of points of application um, for our listeners in terms of what they should do. And uh, maybe the first thing I would say is that we, and it sounds sort of trite, but I, I think it's not, and we should never take it for granted. We should pray, pray for our country, um, pray for our leaders. I pray for the unrest that's happening right now, which is just, you know, is very devastating. It's been horrible to see the things that have happened, you know, in Minnesota and the ensuing um, effects of that. First um, Timothy 2 talks about how we should pray for, for kings and all those in high authority so that there would be peace and so that the gospel could spread. So prayer, being on our knees, um, crying out to our great God to bring about um, justice and, and reconciliation um, is something we should be doing daily for for extended periods of time, I think. Prayer is a good one, and we're instructed to do that. How about just being engaged politically? Uh, just simple mm-hmm. things like exercising your own right to vote. I, I read recently something like half of evangelicals don't even vote in this country. So mm. we really need to be more engaged, especially if we're going to be uh, taking on the commission to be salt and light and Mm-hmm. And if we're going to complain about things, then we ought to at least exercise our own right to vote in this country and be engaged politically. Maybe another application is just to do some study, to uh, study more about this issue of Christians in government. I think, uh, Bob, you had recommended a couple of good books um, there. What, what were the ones that have been helpful to you again? Right, so just to reiterate, the one that I said I think has been really helpful recently is Jonathan Lehman's book, How the Nations Rage. Um, if you don't want to read the longer, that longer book, uh, Mark Dever has a really cool little pamphlet that is just called God and Politics. Um, and then uh, the other one that I think you had mentioned earlier that would be good. I haven't read it, but I'm sure it, the series is really good. Zondervan has this thing called Counterpoints. And uh, there is a Counterpoints, I think, on government where you can see the different views about how Christians should engage in government, which, which Dave sort of articulated briefly at the beginning of the podcast. I think it's called Five Views of Christians in Politics. So you can chase that down as well. Sort of the classic text on, on this mm. issue in a, the last hundred years is written by Reinhold Niebuhr. It's called Christ and Culture. And he talks about the different postures 
Christians can have towards culture and towards government. And so if you want some abstract reading, theological reading, that's, that's a classic that a lot of people refer to that as sort of a watershed book, yeah. helping to frame out these categories. I think and everybody, I, think maybe, I was going to yeah. say, every, I think everybody had to read that in college at some point, if you went right. to a Christian college, certainly. Right. Standard. I think maybe the, uh, the other point of application I would encourage our listeners to take hold of is that uh, our hope really is in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I remember taking a class by Tony Campolo where he cited, I think he's a sociologist, Francis Fukuyama, who argued that the last great idea was democratic capitalism. Um, and of course, that's, that's America. We're the flagship democratic republic. And we want to be a beacon of freedom for the world. But uh, Campolo said, no, 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 the, the last great idea is found in the book of Revelation, when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, amen. And so ultimately, that's our great hope. Well, that is very true, and that is a, I think that's a great point to end on. So I uh, just want to thank everybody for listening. Hopefully this has been edifying and informational and inspiring maybe even for you. Um, we thank you every time for coming in and listening on our conversations. And we do hope that you'll join us for the next underground sessions podcast that we have good day and God bless. God bless. Thank you for listening to the underground sessions podcast, courageous conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. If you enjoyed what you heard today, share our information with your friends and please give us a five-star rating in the iTunes store so others have a better chance of finding us. You can also connect with us at www.millingtonbaptist.org, where our vision as a church is to see the table expanded for the glory of God as more people step into a life-altering relationship with Jesus Christ. We'll see you next time on the Underground Sessions.